Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds on May 31st and June 1st hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Libby Dankman. Welcome to SoundSide. We hope you had a nice Christmas, and with New Year's on the horizon, it's a good time to look back at a very eventful 2023. Here on SoundSide, we want to raise our glass to the hardworking producers who help get this show on the air every single day. And I'm joined by one of those producers, SoundSide's Alec Cowan, who's got some favorite picks of his for our show today. Hey, Alec, welcome to SoundSide, the show that you work on every day. Uh, Thanks for being here. Hey, Libby, it's great to be here. So what producer picks do you have to share with us today? Yeah, well, this year we've done a lot of collaboration with outside reporters and outside hosts. And so today I just really wanted to highlight some of the stories that they brought to the show. And uh, I mean, first up to bat, I'm sure this isn't a surprising pick from the English major. But back in April, I produced a four-part Poetry Month series with Seattle civic poet Shin Yi Pai. Ah, yes, I do remember the series was really great. And you and Shinyi really helped boost my book count on Goodreads. Ah, oof. Yeah, no, that's a good reminder that I need to speed read a few more books to meet my year end goal. Uh, Okay, but there is one segment in the four that I wanted to specifically highlight today. And that's Shinyi's interview with Sean Bentley. So this story was kind of a memoriam for Sean's mother, Beth Bentley, who passed away in 2021. Uh, Sean published a posthumous collection of her poems this year. And this one really stands out to me because we were able to get a number of voice memos from students, friends, uh, contemporaries, and family members who were influenced by Beth. And it's a little more of a kind of abstract piece at the beginning. So I just want to highlight that in addition to Shin Yi and Sean Bentley's voice in the interview, you'll hear the voices of Eileen Walsh-Duncan, Mercedes Lowry, David and Julian Edelman, Lynn Miller, and Daphne Davies. All right, let's take a listen. This is Lynn Miller on March 28th, recording some thoughts about Beth Bentley. I guess we all know Seattle is a city of poets, for sure. Um, In some cases, poets even marry each other. That's what I found when I moved here in 1988. Uh, I first met the other Bentley poet, Nelson, Beth's husband. He was regarded and regarded himself, I think, as a teacher and poet of praise. Praise and description of nature. Beth Bentley, whom I met and took classes with a few years later, was a different kind of teacher and poet. She was more a poet of the interior. I want to read for you her poem from Missing Addresses, which is her most recent book. Nevertheless, though she... I'm Eileen Walsh Duncan and was a student of Beth since 1989. I'm always amazed by how her work connects everyday experiences to the wellsprings of art and philosophy. One such poem from her book, Little Fires, is The Pastry Maker. Hi, my name is Julian Bentley Edelman. I'm Beth Bentley's daughter. And I'm going to read The Old Jewish Cemetery, Prague. A stone village has been dropped from the sky, gray pointed roofs perilously tilted, jutting upward like capsized hulls. This is Sherry Rind reading Beth Bentley's poem, Dying in Paris. 
Ah, finally, the perfect soundproof room, shuttered too against the killing dust. Marcel, I envy you. Beth Bentley's poems are often complex, always intriguing, fascinated by the place in which she finds herself. Light in autumn. I'd like to capture the reflections of the pale green sky as I see it on the window. I'm Sean Bentley. I'm a uh, poet, and uh, we're speaking because um, I helped bring out the final collection of my mother Beth's poetry. Sean, tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in a family of poets. You know, both your mom, Beth, and your father, Nelson, shape literary culture here in Seattle. What impact did that have on you? It, I would have to say it was an unusual childhood by any measure. You know, we had faculty parties where the entire house would be filled with writers, poets, whether they were students or faculty. I, I remember various folks who were rolling into town on reading tours and such. And I just kind of took it in stride. It didn't seem unusual to have books and poetry be the hub of, of the family. It wasn't until later, say, in late high school or college, that I began to feel, as I slipped into my own writings, that you know it was a mixed blessing to have well-known parents on the poetry scene. I would, I would recommend it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you feel like um, some of the themes that concern them in their own poetry, if that's something that came down through you too, in terms of uh, some of your uh, obsessions or preoccupations or themes in your writing? I think that my mother's deep intellectual spirit of discovery, I guess, came through for me. I mean, I think we both read a, a wide variety of, of nonfiction and fiction and difficult reading, you know, that uh, she got a lot of her inspiration for her works, uh, whether it was doing dramatic monologues in the voice of an artist or a writer or just reflecting on some of their writings or poems about subjects that she was be interested in for a period of time. And, and that's certainly come down to me. I, I find that I get inspiration from, you know, quotes from Umberto Eco and oh, any number of other writers and, and, and works of art as well. Well, tell me a little bit more about how your mother's work was appreciated or understood on its own terms during her lifetime. Did she stand in the shadow of your father or did her work grow beyond his own career and reputation? I think it depends on how you look at it. I mean, she couldn't compete locally with his renown because he just taught constantly, and he had thousands of students who never basically left the class. I mean, he would have students who had taken his course in the 1950s who would still show up in his workshops and, and give readings and so forth. So he had this sort of growing army of folks who knew it knew him, loved him, loved his work, and appreciated him on a collegial basis. 
and yet his work was quite different from my mother's and and it was very personal and very humorous and quirky and hers was quite serious and professional and she spent more time writing than teaching i mean he he taught constantly let's just say literally constantly and so she was able to i think uh, not only keep writing, but keep on sending out work continually for, for decades and, and appeared in, I don't know how many hundreds of mag national magazines. And I think she was very well respected amongst a certain kind of poet for many decades until end of the century when I think the, the tides, the tastes in poetry began to shift away from the kind of academic work that she produced. A moment ago, you described your mom's poetry as appealing to a certain kind of uh, type of poet, work that maybe is on the more academic or intellectual side. I'm wondering what you feel like is the legacy that your mother have left to the community of poets that um, she did circulate with and teach and was in community with? Well, that's a good question. I, I would like to think that her students, of whom there were, there were many, but her, you know, she taught it. Bellevue Community College and continuing ed at the university and various arts centers around the state, as, as well as a few gigs out of state. But I, I think what she would have hoped she taught them was how to sort of think outside the box of yourself, to be able to put yourself in the mind of another person, another time, to think deeply and to make associations so that whatever you're writing about will have more than one level you know it's the, it will be itself and it will be illuminating another set of issues out of body they waltz seeming weightless in their filmy white tutus as we watch bewitched the aquarium's private world. They drift, transparent white strings dangling as they eddy up and down in a long wavering line, ghostly parachutes. They touch neither each other or the glass in their lazy pulse, small fists opening, closing, nor visible mouths or eyes. We watch our faces pressed to the lit enclosure eyes following the silent motions of the shadow families of jellyfish. I am afloat on my back in a Minnesota lake, light as a leaf on the surface, paddling gently with hands and feet to stay here, waterborne. I am half asleep on the surface, all human sounds distant. Am I water or am I flesh? I lose all sense of where or when in this virgin time. I breathe with the children. The vast dark room surrounds us, the aquarium alone lit. We're spelled in the twilight silence, eddying lazily with the flotilla in this contained space, stalled in the ether, numinous. Let's go back to Missing Addresses, her, her new book for a moment. 
Just tell me a bit about the book and what are some of the themes in the collection and what are some of your favorite poems in the book? Well, I would say I'm just leaning over to grab a copy of her book here. Uh, most of her, and, and these are all mostly later poems, and, and the tenor of her work changed a little bit over the last 30 or 40 years. But what do, you, what do you mean by that? How did it change? I think that her early poems, by which I would mean the first couple of books, Phone Calls from the Dead, and which was her first, her first book, Country of Resemblances as well, were more personal. You know, she was in the in the midst of raising a couple of teenagers at the time, and so there are some poems about that kind of experience, maternal experiences, comparing her childhood experiences with those of her own children. And in Missing Addresses, she, of course, is, is writing after her children are middle-aged, and so she's really gone interior, and she's writing a lot about memory, about her Jewish upbringing and about, and I think about relationships, whether they're people she's loved or other people who are having their own relationships. You know, I'm, I'm quite fond of the title poem of, of her book, Missing Addresses. It's quite long, but it really encapsulates her experience growing up and her childhood, her middle years, and then watching her own mother fading away at the end of her life. So they're they're very mature poems, and I think they illuminate a lot about her, but perhaps somebody coming to her book for the first time wouldn't realize that without a leap of faith, if you will. I would say, as you're approaching these poems, as you read through them, you should think about why she's writing this particular image, for example. It's, it's, there's, they're, they're poignant images. How did it feel for her, like struggling for so many years trying to get this book out in the world? Do you have a sense of what that was like for her? It was quite frustrating. I mean, she had two major complaints, or maybe three. <laughs> One was that poetry itself was becoming less formal and more confessional, um, and that she just felt like she was too old-fashioned. The second complaint was that, attached to that, was that she felt like she was growing too old, that there were all these young whippersnappers writing poetry and she just thought well you know i've i've got too many miles on the odometer too many publications to my name and and thirdly she felt male poets had got a stranglehold on the industry now whether that's true or not is up for debate but she did feel almost discriminated against just just being a, a woman poet she dedicates this poem to Marianne Moore another matriarch of poetry. And in reading it, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of Beth herself and her writing. Nevertheless, though she listed with formidable precision the minutia of the simplest of objects or subjects, formulating, particularizing with a sort of cool passion. At some moment, her observations took off as she jumped into the ether from a standing position, embracing the airy atmosphere of the gnomic. As if she were a creature accustomed to wild forays 
in the forest of possibilities, she sailed from the literal into the tenable, not to mention terrible. Harmless as she seemed, her smile, benign and calm, belied the likelihood of a sudden, sharp slash into our banal realities. She was the spiny rose we felt constrained to grasp. Anything else that, you know, you want us to know about your mother's legacy, about her work, about this book? I think that's it. I mean, it's a a collection that it touches on the experience of a of somebody who considered herself an outsider, whether it was her her feeling like a Jew in a Christian upbringing, uh, or feeling like an intellectual in an unintellectual culture. And I think, you know, as as readers, if if there are readers who might identify with the notion of being underappreciated or at, at some kind of a remove from the mainstream, uh, it, it might be um, worth taking a look at, at her work. It's very moving. That was Shinyi Pai in conversation with Sean Bentley from our Poetry in Bloom series from April. And Soundside will be back with more producer picks after a quick break here on KUOW. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman, and I'm here with Soundside producer Alec Cowan, and we're playing some of his favorite segments from this last year. Hey, Alec. Hey, Libby. So what'd you pick for us next? Yeah, well, keeping with the theme of folks that we've collaborated with this year, I wanted to highlight a recent story I produced with Anna King. So Anna covers Central Washington for the Northwest News Network. And in October this year, she brought us this story about volunteer archaeologists and search and rescue folks searching Mool Mool, or what we call Fort Simcoe State Park over in Central Washington. And Anna spent a few days out on site following these volunteers in their yellow lab, Keeley, And, you know, Anna just put so much thought and care into this story. And I'm just really glad that we were able to put something together because it's not often that we're able to go out to the other side of the mountains. And so, yeah, I'm just thankful that Anna was inspired to do this story and also that she was willing to share it with us and work with us on bringing it to this side of the Cascades. Yeah, Anna is such a treasure. And I love the stories that you and she cook up when you work together. So let's take a listen to that. Okay, Anna, tell me about Keeley and what he's trying to do. So Keeley is this exuberant yellow lab. He's a trained cadaver dog, which means that he's gone through hours and hours of training to sniff special compounds that happen when a body decomposes. Anna King is the Richland correspondent for the Northwest News Network. She recently reported on efforts to find indigenous remains on the Yakima Indian Reservation in central Washington. He has this bell around his neck as he winds his way through this palomino-colored grass and all this brush. And when he finds something, he just lays down and barks. And he might be there all around Fort Simcoe and sniffing the ground and trying to discern where old bones might be buried, even hundreds of years old, under the ground. 
And they can only do it, Libby, in the morning when the dew is on the grass and there's more aromas evaporating off the ground. And when it gets later in the day, the dogs get tired from the heat or from more sun. And they also just can't sniff as well. So Keeley is part of a larger team, including Suzanne Elschult, Guy Mansfield, and John Schellenberger. What are they looking for? So they're at this place that the Yakima Nation calls Mool Mool. And those outside the tribe know it as Fort Simcoe State Park or Fort Simcoe Historical State Park. The site has this long history. Originally, it was this beautiful spring site and a crossroads between different trails that Native Americans crossed. So if they were going from the mountains to the Columbia River down towards Dallesport, they would use these trails. Or if they were going from the valley to the mountains, they would use these trails. And as the military found out about this place of strength that had clean, fresh water, a crossroads between different places, they decided to take it over and establish it as a military fort. And they used it against the Yakima Nation and bands in all of these conflicts that they had, the wars. Eventually, that fort closed and it was turned over to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. A boarding school was built and and operated for many years. Native children were forced to attend as part of a forced assimilation program there. So it's believed that the remains at this site could be from that village. It could be from the casualties of the Yakima War in the 1850s. And also, it could be from these tiny children that were forced to attend the boarding school there. So this site has a long and painful history for the Yakima Nation. Why are they searching this now? What is prompting this? So they have been searching this area for a while. And when Suzanne Eschel, the dog's handler, saw an article in the Yakima Herald Republic about Fort Simcoe in Moolmool, she got really interested and she thought, this is a job for my dog. I could be a help here. And so he's doing some vocalization around here. Um, so he may be in faint odor. I may be marking this as an area of interest. Come back to it later, tomorrow, when the conditions are different. We'll and so she contacted the Yakima Nation and the people working on it, John Schellenberger and Emily Washines. She got in contact with them and asked permission from the tribes and the nation to work on this site with them in collaboration and bring very highly skilled search and rescue professionals along with her that have sophisticated mapping tools and other other ways to search for these remains. And they got started right away after all the permitting and the permissions were all done. And as you mentioned, it's not just Keeley that Suzanne and her team are employing to search the site. What other kinds of technology is involved here? And what does that search look like? It's like a really tough site to search. It's hilly and has valleys, low spots, and it's 200 acres of land that they're trying to search through. And so what they did is they have one 
search and rescue professional, Guy Mansfield. The general focus of search planning is you're always going to have a limited number of resources, and this is true whether you're searching for unmarked burials or lost people in the wilderness. You're never going to have enough resources. He uses historical accounts, maps, oral histories, and all of this data to determine what areas have a higher probability of finding something. So an example of the factors could be proximity to the old boarding school dormitories, an area where there's soil where it's easy to dig, okay? Because you may have seen some of the soil around here is very hard. And then once they do that, then they send the dogs into those specific squares of areas. They break it all down into a grid, and the dogs search the highest probability squares uh, of land. And then if the dogs repeatedly mark an area as of interest, if they continually say, hey, something's over here, then they use this machine called the ground penetrating radar, which basically Libby looks like a baby jogger, but it has the sophisticated machinery on it. And they skim it over the land and it puts down a signal kind of like a fish finder and it has a screen on it. And then in the screen, they can see all of the information that's under the ground. And they, if there were remains or if there was a depression in the earth or other things, they're able to find it there. Here's John Schellenberger. He's an archaeologist. Because it's an electrical pulse, it's going to pick up highly conductive material, water and metal. Some of the less conductive materials would be wood and like pipes, like uh, PVC and rocks. So like modern caskets made of metal just show up like really well. But prehistoric burials that have no caskets, um, that have no rock lining or anything don't reflect as well. So a lot of times water will accumulate at the top of a burial or maybe at the bottom, depending. And that water is what reflects up. So you're not necessarily seeing the bones, you're seeing the context around that. Anna, is it guesswork at this point that there will be remains found at the site? Or do they have a good sense that, yes, there is something to find there? There's a high probability that there will be remains found at the site. How many of these burials might be there or where they're placed? Hard to know. But they're trying to use historical data, maps, architectural renderings and drawings to inform where they're searching. And it's just terribly serious, Libby. It's it's very heavy work. It was very emotional to be on site with these crews and with the Native American people who are leading this study. There was just a lot of bubbling up about all the history and the atrocities that have happened here. Yeah, there is this really excruciating reckoning going on at the forced assimilation processes and the family separations that occurred because of these native boarding schools. And, of course, remains of hundreds of indigenous children have been found at sites of these boarding schools in North America and Canada and the United States. How has that work across North America affected the search at Fort Simcoe or Mumul? 
One of my sources, Emily Washeen, she's a historian, a Yakima Nation tribal member, and John Schellenberger's wife, says that indigenous people in Canada have used dogs and ground-penetrating radar and other tools to help them uncover graves and atrocities that were imposed by boarding schools. And so it's provided this sort of roadmap for this grim work that they're doing here near Yakima. Here's Emily. There are memories here that I have that are happy memories with family, playing softball or having different uh, celebrations and with food and laughter and family. But we always are aware of kind of the history that's in this area. We are from generations of boarding school, and even my father was abused in public school in, within Washington State for speaking his language in, in the 50s. And so that definitely continues to impact this generation. The things that were done in the late 1800s and the decades of forced assimilation and violent assimilation continues to impact this generation. And what did Emily Wachin say about the importance of finding remains in the context of Yakima culture? She told me that in Yakima culture, the unmarked graves are a pretty serious thing. They don't go to grave sites Libby at night or for fun, like to be spooked out at Halloween. They don't go near graves during the latter part of the day. They would never eat a picnic in a graveyard like some Western cultures do to honor their dead. And so they're worried that possibly some of these graves might be unwittingly desecrated by people just because nobody knows that they're there. So it's really against our culture and our history to have unmarked graves, to have somebody in an unmarked area. We're very specific with how are to be handled traditionally. And so it's important for us to find them and handle them in a way that's in accordance to our traditional laws. And so to have an unmarked burial is a violation of our traditional laws, and it's something that we work to fix. So this is really an exercise to protect those people, to know that they're there, to honor them, even if they're not moved and they're honored in place, they just want to know that they have found them and that they are there and they've done the best job that they can. And if the remains are found, these Yakima Nation remains, what will happen with them? So that's up to the tribal council and the government of the Yakima Nation. And ultimately, we may never know if there are remains found. That's up to the nation to really decide whether they want to share that in a broader way or if they want to keep that close within their own bounds. I think that it's an interesting thing in Western society. If you find something, then we tell everybody or somebody claims it or it's owned or something like that. And that's not possibly what will happen here. I think that it is really interesting that it was so fresh. It was so emotional to just stand there with Emily and with John and realize the history that is personal to them, that they're, in one case, John Schellenberger's great-great-great-grandfather was a very high official. He was 
an agent with the federal government at Fort Simcoe, and he was white, and his maternal side was Native American. And so just that story alone shows you how complicated this is. Here's John. I just feel like this is kind of a home, even though it's marked by tragedy. Um, How can you feel like a stranger in your own home, even though a fort was built on top of it, and even though a boarding school was built on top of it? I believe in our ancestors and the fact that they wanted the best for us. And, you know, they prayed for us without even knowing who we were. So we're here because of their prayers and we're doing this work because of their strength and their tenacity to survive this horrible 60 years or more of boarding schools. Oh, and now he is searching to find answers about the site and hopefully to bring some respect and peace to any remains that may be found there. You spent two days with John and the whole team as they searched the Fort Simcoe and Momul site. Did they find anything? They found this really interesting depression in the earth that had been filled in with soil. And it was evidently man-made from what John was saying. And he was really excited to find it. And it just looked like this white line on the screen, like a grainy white line. It almost reminded me of like an ultrasound picture. And he was looking at it so intently and he was so excited. And he said, this could be a depression that was an archaeological trench dug many years ago by early archaeological teams. It could have been a food pit used to store food. Or it could have been even a latrine, but most likely something other than a latrine given its location. There's at least three different contexts here um, lying on top of one another that are probably going to show up. So you have the archaeological context going back thousands of years and you all the way up to the fort when you have even more archaeology from the fort and then 60 years of use of the boarding school. So... It's really hard to split hairs and say, okay, well, this is for that or this is for that. How long is this process expected to take, Anna? The group thinks that this particular study will happen through the spring and that they'll conclude their active field work after the dogs come back in the spring. Uh, but the overarching work on this site might span well past their lifetimes. And there's something that's very, that can really hit at your heart hearing that because I sometimes lack patience. (laughs) But to come to the realization and acceptance that this work will continue probably beyond my lifetime is is a point that I had to get to. And upon a lot of reflection and prayer. And what really helped me in that moment is I thought, I think that we, myself, and others that work on this are exactly who our ancestors prayed for to one day help solve and bring to light some of the atrocities and horrible things that happened. 
Anna King covers Washington and Oregon, mainly east of the mountains for the Northwest News Network. She produced this story in partnership with the Yakima Herald Republic. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for having me. That was Anna King reporting on the search for Yakima ancestral remains at Fort Simcoe State Park. And that first aired in late November. I'm Libby Denkman. We're going to be back with more on SoundSide right after this. Hey, this is Libby Denkman, and you're listening to SoundSide on KUOW. We're looking back on some of our producers' favorite segments from 2023. And today, SoundSide producer Alec Cowan is making some picks. So what's your final segment for us today, Alec? Yeah, well, I mean, this year I've really enjoyed collaborating with KOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. We've produced a whole range of segments. They're a great conversation with Della Chen about the local Chinese girls drill team. Uh, we got to interview Common, which was a big highlight of my year. Uh, but the conversation I want to highlight now is a segment we did back in March about the XFL. And that's the Alternative Football League, right? And in Seattle, the team is called the Sea Dragons. Yes, the Sea Dragons. And for a lot of our local sports segments, I tend to take this approach where we kind of chat with historians about past precedents. So, for example, we heard from some collegiate realignment experts after the Pac-12 dissolved. Rip Pac-12, we loved you. We talked about the history of cheating in baseball after the big rule changes in the MLB this year. And this segment is about the history of kind of quote-unquote alternative sports leagues, which is just, I mean, fascinating. It makes you appreciate the teams that we have while we have them. All right. I love the extra context, and I'm excited to take a listen back to Mike and Alex's story on the Seattle Sea Dragons. Spring is a hard time for most football fans. No NFL, no college football, no on-the-field action. Just the occasional news of a trade or a contract signing. But in Seattle, there's something new to cheer on. The Seattle Sea Dragons of the XFL. Danucci, end zone! He's in! Seattle on the board! Well, they're 3-2. and two. They lost their first two games, like on the last play of the game. Then they won the last three. They're definitely on the, uh, on the right track. That's Scott Hansen from the Seattle Times. There are a lot of familiar things about these games. The Sea Dragons play at Lumen Field. There's even former Seahawks receiver Josh Gordon. But there are differences, like rules designed to make the games more exciting. For example, kickoffs no longer set teams on opposite ends of the field. Instead, they just stand five yards apart from each other. The kickoff rule. You need to clear the 20, keep it in front of the end zone. There are other differences NFL fans will notice, too. The biggest one is probably is that there's no extra points. So teams can get either one, two, or three points after a touchdown. You get one point if you try a one play from the two-yard line, two points if you try from the five-yard line, and three if you try from the ten. formation for Ben DiNucci, and Seattle is right in the middle of this race in the XFL North. This will be the first full season the Sea Dragons have played. The team was originally formed in 2020. But after playing just five games, they and the rest of the league had to stop due to COVID restrictions. And for a time, it seemed like that was the end of the XFL altogether. But a lot of people showed up for those games in Seattle. You got 30,000 for the first game, I think about 20 the next. Um, it was a fairly successful market, so I think it was kind of a no-brainer for them to come back here when this new reboot of the league, you know, with the new owners, Dwayne Rock Johnson and Danny Garcia and a few others. Historically, alternative professional leagues have always struggled. This is actually the third version of the XFL. 
The first was created by Vince McMahon, the famed head of WWE wrestling. It only lasted one season. I mean, it was almost like WWE on the football field. It was scantily clad cheerleaders. It was just really kind of a football was secondary. This latest version of the XFL is going for a more familiar feel. I think they realized for this league to be successful, it has to be good football. If it's not good football, people aren't going to come. Even so, Scott tells me that so far, attendance numbers are down compared to 2020, around nine or 10,000 a game. It's a bit of a chicken and egg question. Can teams build a fan base strong enough to survive? And for fans, how much do they want to cheer on or invest in a team that might not be around next year? The question of how spring football can survive is an old one. It's something that Paul Reefs knows well. Reefs is a historian of alternative sports leagues, and he told me that others have tried and ultimately failed. Notably, there was the USFL from the 1980s. The original thought behind the USFL was that, yes, there there was room for a spring football league, uh, that it would be something that wouldn't be at the same level as the NFL in terms of the player level, the attendance, or the television ratings, but it would still do well enough in the spring and summer that it could support itself. Uh, the, the founder thought that they could control player salaries, that they would hit uh, television ratings, uh, a rating of around a five when the NFL was drawing about a 14 or better, uh, and draw an average attendance of right around 25,000 when the NFL was well over 50 at the time. So it was something that was going to be on a smaller scale, uh, but that it was built to be sustainable, or at least that was the vision. And I know that they obviously eventually they didn't make it, but did they accomplish those goals at all? So the the thing that you really look at with the USFL, uh, and I mentioned that it was a long, you know, the kind of the last in this long line of challengers to the NFL. It was the last challenger to any major league. So, the, of course, with basketball, you had had the American Basketball Association. With hockey, you had had the World Hockey Association. Uh, and you kind of had all this stuff rapidly happening in the 60s and 70s as, as kind of the appetite for professional sports was growing, as the television product of professional sports was growing. All these leagues were popping up. Well, the USFL was the last of those. It was a last attempt. So uh, I, the fact that it lasted three years, in my opinion, is kind of a miracle. Uh, and it didn't miss any games in the process. When you look at the World Football League a decade earlier, it had, uh, had franchises failed during the season and had skipped a bunch of games uh, and then eventually folded in the middle of its second season. Well, the USFL made it all three seasons, and it was a much bigger effort than that. So uh, you know the the USFL did not succeed, uh, not as intent as originally intended. Uh, but there hasn't even been a real major league attempt since then, a, a, an attempt to challenge a major league since then. So really, to me, when I look at it, I look at it very fondly because it was almost miraculous that it made it three seasons. Right, and it's interesting that you mentioned some of those even earlier attempts because um, particularly in the NBA and the NFL, right? When you think of the AFL, 
that legacy is still here. We still celebrate the AFL. They still wear those throwback jerseys in games. Um, you know, when the NBA merged with the ABA, some of those franchises are literally still here today. So I, I ask, what is the legacy of the USFL? Are there any teams that we still remember? Any players whose names we might still remember as that lingering legacy of that league? The USFL was a major league effort, so it had its share of the greatest players of that time. Uh, you have Hall of Famers who came out of that league, such as Jim Kelly and Steve Young. Uh, Sam Mills was just inducted recently. Uh, Gary Zimmerman. Uh, you had this whole bevy of all pro players. I saw somebody refer to it as, you know, when he watched the Pro Bowl in the late 80s, it was a, a who's who of the USFL for several <laughs> years. Uh, the USFL took first-round draft picks away from the NFL, such as wide receiver Anthony Carter out of the University of Michigan. It signed three straight Heisman Trophy winners and Herschel Walker, Mike Rozier, Doug Flutie. Uh, so it was getting, you know, some of the best players of the day to sign on. Um, so to me, when I look at what the legacy of the USFL is, you really find it both in those players and in the legacy of spring football that has kind of followed forth from this. Uh, the NFL tried it a few years later with the World League of American Football. You know, we've seen the XFL. We've seen the XFL. And now again, we've seen the XFL. So <laughs> the third time we had the Alliance of American Football a few years ago. And so they, there seems this the USFL kicked all this off that bringing in summer football wasn't anything that was besides a, a college practice time uh, before that. With that much talent, being able to be on TV, how did the USFL fail? What happened? It seems like they should have been more sustainable. So the, I mean, the thing that's really easy to lose sight of is that these teams and these leagues are, are business entities and Hiring that much talent, even at the time, was very expensive. So the USFL, over the course of three seasons, lost $200 million. It had, you know, that was despite the fact that it was on ABC and that it had a contract with ESPN. And the, the hump that the USFL couldn't get over was that it couldn't get a television deal that would help really offset those losses from player salaries. That's what really sustained the American Football League in 1965 when NBC gave it a big television contract. At that moment, the NFL knew it was no longer a little a little thing that it could eventually wipe out of business. They knew that at that point they were going to have to merge or that salaries would kill both leagues. And that's that's kind of what the USFL never got to was that that next level television contract, which would have allowed it to maintain those salaries. As an ESPN Plus subscriber, they are pushing the XFL extremely hard to us right now. They are bending over backwards to get us to watch. And, you know, it's interesting, though, because the NFL right now is bigger than ever. And, you know, you have college football with this long legacy of prestige. And it just it, it seems like 
there's not enough room for another league. But what I've noticed in the XFL is that it feels like they're kind of hanging their hat on trying to be different than NFL football. So you've, you've seen some rule changes, right? Like there's no uh, field goals after touchdowns. You know, you got the one point, two point, three point options. They change the way you do kickoffs. There are things that make the game feel different. Do you think that the different style of play will be enough to attract football fans? You know, it's a great question. I think it's going to take more than that. Uh, I, I do, when I look at the XFL style of play, I see something that is different, but it's not, it doesn't really come across as gimmicky to me. Um, yes, you know, you, you've eliminated extra points and you have these different one, two, and three point options. Uh, it, Really, you know, the extra point, the NFL itself kind of got tired of how easy it was. And it's, you know, some could argue that maybe it's a tired option after the touchdown. And this brings a little bit more life into it. They want the XFL wanted to maintain kickoff returns rather than, you know, so many of the kickoffs going into the end zone and not being returned at all, as we see in the NFL. Right. So it, 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 has kind of has this modified kickoff where uh, the covered team doesn't get as much of a running start. Uh, so that and you know the, with onside kicks, on, the onside kick percentage in the NFL now is so low. Instead, the XFL gives you the option for a fourth and fifteen play. You convert that, you get, you get another drive. Uh, so you know these these things are are interesting. Um, we've already seen them have an impact. In some games, it does make it pretty exciting at times. It, it does. <laughs> so, you know, I I think that it helps. But, you know, what the XFL, I think, is really trying to do is is, is sell something more, sell, sell opportunity, uh, you know, sell entertainment. And I think that there's everything right with that, uh, that sometimes with sports we get so wrapped up in how our team is doing or – you know, if somebody has money on it, how that's performing, that we've kind of lost our way sometimes with looking at sports as entertainment. Just, uh, you know, when, when I look at that Seattle crowd, you know, they're just having a good time out there. And that's really what it's all about is just bringing that entertainment aspect back to sports. Uh, you know, the off, the XFL uh, offers a little bit more accessibility. You know, if you're bringing a family to a game, what a, a terrific experience. Through the eyes of a child, this is a major event. And that's the way that they're going to grow up remembering it. So just enjoy it. Have fun. Be glad it's there. And, and support it the best that you can. Thank you. Thank you. Paul Reese is a collector and historian of the USFL and other alternative NFL leagues. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. That was Mike Davis reporting on the XFL's Seattle Sea Dragons, and that story first aired in March. You can find all of today's producer picks over at KUOW.org slash soundside. And that's it for our show today. The show is produced by Alec Cowan with support from Noel Gaska, Jason Burroughs, Hans Anderson, and Sarah Leibovitz. Soundside's editor is Jed Kim. And we'll be back tomorrow with... Oh my gosh, some of my favorite picks from the year. Jed, Kim, and I are going to make our picks. I'm Libby Denkman. We'll see you right back here on Soundside on KUOW.
Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.